Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast with John Halsman, where we try to untangle the beguiling place that we actually live in. Well, today's the big one. It's the political risk predictions for 2021. And I'd like to begin this with an unmatchable quote by Charles Dickens from the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. These competing dualities that begin Dickens' great novel really do sum up history that every era you live in has good and bad qualities, has good and bad things that seem at the time earth-shattering, but are really part of a common ongoing thread of history. Good and bad exist around us all the time. And in the spirit of Dickens, we're going to divide our predictions into six, three very good things happening in the world. This is never looked upon enough by political risk predictors and three bad things, uh, three risks to be taken advantage of and three risks to be navigated as we make our way through the year. And then as ever with our risk column, we're going to have an um, upset special at the end, a high risk, high impact event we think is going to happen in the near future that you absolutely need to be aware of. And that's how we're going to proceed. Uh, before we start the prediction column, though, I just want to say again, I challenge, I have the radical view in our era, our tired era, that we should be judged by what we say, by our prediction rate in my business, our call record, as we call it, looking at the predictions we've made over the last five, 10 years, how accurate we've been. And if you're in a firm with someone whose accurate rate, accuracy rate is about that of the monkey score, 50% or lower, if the people you're with have been wrong about Brexit, wrong about Trump, Afghanistan, Iraq, populism, etc., rise of China, etc., you probably shouldn't be with them. It's not good enough just to say they're a brand anymore. Being right and content are more and more king because we live in a world where there's an awful lot of snake oil in the political risk business, but an awful lot of good work being done. And by the way, political risk, as I wrote in my book, To Dare More Boldly, is a lot like baseball. 150, 160 games are played, and even the best team is going to lose 40 or 50 of those games, and often to very bad teams. Because it isn't perfect, the call record system doesn't mean it doesn't produce worthy world champions. Because over this stretch of time, the best teams do tend to make the playoffs and win the World Series time after time after time. And so don't let the lack of perfection in the political risk call record system mean that this isn't a wonderful guide to whether the firm is any good or not. And I would say that over the last 20 years that I've been doing this, our call record at John C. Halsman Enterprises is over 80% unmatched. That should lead you to ask why. What are we doing right? Why, what, when we're wrong, what are we doing wrong? And what can you learn from both of them? But with an 80% call record, we're offering added value in a way that people doing 50% are just mimicking the ape score. A lot of snake oil, but there are an awful lot of good competitors I have out there as well. And so those of us getting in the 70, 80% range, we are indeed the Los Angeles Dodgers moving ahead and you should work with us. Having made my shameless plug based on the call record, what is the call record for 2021? And I offer you seven political risk predictions, three very good ones, three bad ones, and then one upset special. 
But I thought we'd start with the good, because too often political risk, even the word risk, is seen negatively. And there are an awful lot of opportunities out there, and we don't talk nearly enough about them, and myself included. And one of my New Year's resolutions is to talk more positively about the world, because there's an awful lot of creative, interesting things going on, and we should discuss that, as well as all the dangers that are out there where I'm very good at helping you navigate them. So what are the three positives I see? Well, number one, in line with Dickens, COVID is over. By the standards that we've set before of COVID being based upon the death rate and the hospitalization rate, and if we look at history, what's happening with COVID now is in line with the other great pandemics of the 20th century, of which I've become acutely acquainted over the last couple of years. If we look at the Spanish flu of 1918-1920, in terms of mortality, the greatest death rate of any of the pandemics of the last hundred years, uh, 1918 to 1920, the Asian flu as it was known of 1957-58, and the Hong Kong flu of 1968-69, we see a similar pattern. In line with Darwinian thinking, what Charles Darwin would say, the virus not wanting to be destroyed, and in the face of vaccines or herd immunity, does what? It becomes more transmissible and kills fewer people. So it's less deadly, less lethal, and becomes more transmissible in each case until each of these three just enter the common flu strain that we all deal with all the time. We may very well have had an ancestor of the Spanish flu without knowing it because it has become more transmissible but less lethal. And that's what's happening with COVID right now. If you look at Omicron, it's more transmissible and less lethal by every standard. Certainly the news and data coming out of South Africa confirms this. And this is good news. This means more people will get it. Fewer people will be hospitalized and die. More antibodies will be built up over time. And even if it gets by the vaccines, that this is good and becomes rather than a world historical issue or calamity, just something we're going to have to live with. And this is the year we transition between COVID being a world historical emergency and just something we have to live with. So by the standards of that, of deaths, hospitalizations, and what a world historical emergency is, despite all the news stories, all the hysteria out there, COVID is over, as we've known it as a major political risk. And that will happen in this coming year. That's our first great positive prediction. Our second prediction is that for all the coming of the Sino-American Cold War, for all the increase in political risk in Asia, there's still an awful lot of good news out there about buying opportunities macroeconomically in the Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's political risk is, but also most of the world's future economic reward. And we miss that second point. Even though the Chinese are going to become, become old before they get rich, their new demographic numbers are terrible, even massaged, and Chinese statistics are notoriously unreliable as they make things up. Um, the reality is that their new number for their dem- their demography is 1.48, not even near the 2.1 replacement rate, more in line with Portugal, Greece, and Italy, a Southern European country, catastrophically low rates of demography, which means China's going to get old before it gets rich. And the Chinese workers increasingly will see prices go up for them because there are fewer of them pushing for jobs, and this will lead to an upward um, increase in price. But that doesn't mean Asia spent. Rather, the jobs and the action and the competitive advantage of lower labor costs 
simply migrate south toward factory Asia, to the countries that have worked around the Chinese miracle in ASEAN, places particularly like Vietnam, which is booming at the moment and will continue to boom, ASEAN, and most of all, India. Of all the great powers in the world, only India in the next 20 years has demographic catch-up growth, a very young population in contrast to China, and this is when societies take off. It simply doesn't matter in political risk terms, also a very good thing, whether there's a BJP Modi-led government or a Congress-led government, they will do roughly the same things. And if these new governments, Modi and then the future ones, are moderately less corrupt, which Modi has been, moderately more pro-business, moderately more open. Notice the relative terms I'm using. India is set to take off at 6 to 8% growth rates of increase at the India level for the next 20 years. It is the next country set to go into the stratosphere. And there will be huge, because of this macroeconomic reality, there will be huge microeconomic opportunities for businesses everywhere. India is the single biggest buy in the world next to factory Asia. And these two together will mean that Asia, for all the political risk, is still the place to look for growth moving forward. And this is great news indeed. The third bit of positive news out there is the very structure of the world that we live in. Think about it this way. There are two superpowers at the moment, the United States and China. But beneath them, there are five other great powers that, unlike the Sino-American the, the Cold War, unlike the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, these countries have an awful lot of room to maneuver and chart their own foreign policies. They don't have to fall into line between one of the two superpowers whose grasp is relatively weaker than it was in the first Cold War. This means that India, Japan, the Anglosphere countries, Russia, um, and the EU all have a chance to chart their own course. There are limits to this. The Russians can decide to be pro-Chinese or neutral. And the other four, and this is the very good news at the great power level, can either be pro-American or neutralist. This gives the United States a gigantic advantage. At the moment, Russia is somewhere between the two. It's drifting into the Chinese orbit, but it worries about being Robin to China's Batman because great Russian nationalism doesn't work well in the Robin role. And so it hasn't fully thrown in its lot with the Chinese and is somewhere between the two. The same, ironically, for the EU, led by mercantilist Germany, China is the largest trading partner of Germany, which is more export-driven and dominated than any country you can think of. But there's still a lot of pro-Atlanticist leanings within Europe, particularly in Northern Europe, afraid of the Russians. Eastern Europe, same story. And old Atlanticist allies like Mario Draghi's Italy. So Europe is a mixed bag, neither pro-American nor neutralist, but somewhere in between. So China has half an ally. The U.S. has half an ally in the EU. But the other three great powers are all firmly lining up between, behind the United States. This means India, Japan, and the English-speaking Anglosphere world of the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. Butch and Sundance. And so the U.S. wakes up at the moment to find itself among the great powers with three and a half allies to the, to the Chinese having half an ally and some of the time the Russians. This means if the United States has the wit to play the cards that it's given well, and that's a big if indeed, the world is likely to remain pro-Western and pro-American. And when we mentioned the Chinese problems of before, 
you have to add that in. So the odds still favor a Western domination of the new world that we live in. And that's a great thing and an under-discussed thing. The very structure of the world favors us. So our big three positive predictions, COVID is ending. Asia remains a huge buy, particularly India and factory Asia. And the structure of the world leads to still a pro-Western world. And that's a very good thing for those of us living there. Well, what are the negatives? Our fourth prediction is that the Sino-American Cold War becomes the central organizing geostrategic principle of our era. And we've gotten this right. I, I have to crow as opposed to our enemies who've said idiotic things like there's already been a Cold War in China 1 or Chimerica, the notion that somehow that the U.S. and China will get along. And there have been huge mistakes. Do look at the record on this where we have consistently said and say again, the Sino-American Cold War is the organizing principle of the new time that we live in. And this is fundamental. And you just see this in the last couple of years where Xi has scared the horses. He's gone away from Deng Xiaoping's remarkably effective uh, strategy of softly, softly bide your time and then address things as you keep growing and the Americans grow at 2%, you grow at 6%, and in 30 years they can address everything they want. Xi, impatient with history as radicals are, has instead started a war with the Indians in the high Himalaya, where the Chinese have captured over 100 square kilometers of territory. There's been actual fighting. There have been deaths as people have been thrown off in John Le Carre style cliffs in the Himalaya. And the Chinese have bullied the Indians right into the arms of the Americans. At the same time, they're oppressing the native Uyghur population in western Xinjiang province. And oppressing is a nice word for what the Chinese are doing there. This has frightened everyone. The Chinese have stamped out the democracy movement firmly in Hong Kong. They've ignored the International Court of Arbitration's ruling that no, they don't own the whole of the South China Sea, ignored the ruling, fought with all their neighbors, bickered with them about everything, and have militarized man-made uh, atolls in the South China Sea, as well as natural uh, features there, and are militarizing and building this up as a Chinese bastion. They've picked a fight with the Japanese in the East China Sea. They threaten the Taiwanese every other weekend. Uh, they start a trade war with the Australians for merely having the temerity to ask, where did COVID start from? And as to COVID, perhaps most wickedly of all in law order fashion, Xi is guilty of manslaughter. Once the virus was loosed, once he saw the hit his people were going to take, he determined to leave flights open to the outside world while closing down Wuhan, saying, if we're going to take an almighty hit, so is the rest of the world. For all these data points, you see China more bellicose, more adventurous, more revisionist, more aggressive, more militaristic, and you see the actual empirical facts of the beginning of the Sino-American Cold War, which is now a reality. And this is our fourth prediction. Prediction number five on the negative front, endemic inflation is upon us. That the wonderful story that Paul Volcker told me when we were snowed in in Switzerland, like um, it felt like it was murder on the Orient Express. We couldn't get the train into where we were in a Swiss chalet. So we had a day to sit around and talk. And what a, what a treat for me. One of the great things about my job and what makes my life interesting is the interesting people that I meet. And Volcker was certainly one of the most interesting. The legendary chairman of the Fed told me the story of when inflation was raging 
at 13 percent. He went to Ronald Reagan and he said, look, Mr. President, we can kill this beast dead, but I'm going to have to raise interest rates to about 20 percent. There's going to be a great recession. You're going to lose the midterms and it might even cost you reelection in 1984. And Reagan, in his wonderful way, where, where he was a, if anything, underrated president and certainly a great one, amiably tapped Paul Volcker on the knee. Nobody's instincts were better than Reagan's, except, ironically, perhaps Franklin Roosevelt's. He taps him on the knee and he says, Paul, thank you for your concern. You let me worry about the politics and you worry about inflation. And indeed, that's how they divided things. And Volcker did slay the beast for 40 years. For 40 years, none of us have had to deal with inflation. Now we're looking at 6.8% inflation in the United States, and it's been over 5% for the last five months. The central bankers have taken their eye off the ball along with governments in their fear of COVID. There have been three factors driving inflation. One is transitory, as they've talked about, and two are not. The transitory factor is that, yes, there is a mismatch and was bound to be a mismatch between demand and supply as pent-up demand grew out of the pandemic and supply is just-in-time manufacturing. Because of this, there is going to be this mismatch. There's going to be bottlenecks and prices will temporarily go up. And we've seen that. But there are two other drivers of inflation that have been neglected by the central bankers and governments. The first is that globalization as we know it is over. The idea that there is one supply chain with the U.S. and China, its twin-headed Hydra at the head, um, is over because for 20 years there was an implicit political risk bet that economics would always trump politics, that the U.S. and China, however much of a rivalry they got into, would never undo the one supply chain because they both benefited so much by it. And so economics would keep them from making politics matter very much. And that, by and large, has been the view of businesses at every conference I've been to and is held now for the last 20 years, fairly accurately. But that's not the world that we live in anymore because of the Sino-American Cold War that we just talked about. Now people care far more about geopolitics and far less about geoeconomics. We don't care if it's the most efficient way that the Chinese make all our pharmaceuticals. We care that the Chinese are making all our pharmaceuticals, and we would rather duplicate those efforts, raising the price, and know that some of those pharmaceuticals were made by allies of ours, or indeed domestically. And so we don't mind the cost increases. We mind who's making them. Ditto for rare earths. We don't want the Chinese to mine all the rare earths in the world, even if that makes the most economic sense. Nor do we want the Chinese to produce all the semiconductors in the world, even if that makes the most economic sense, along with very precariously perched Taiwan. Rather, we want to diversify this. So you're seeing onshoring as Chinese prices rise, Obviously, it's better to help your own domestic workers if you can. You're seeing hedging about the one supply chain, and you're seeing regionalization. More will be made within the EU, within ASEAN, within NAFTA, because we can count on those other countries to politically mirror the views that we all have. This will lead to a higher rise in prices endemically. It's not that the one supply chain ceases to exist. Of course, U.S. to China trade will remain important and the one global globalized network will continue, but it will be tattered and there will be these other alternatives as hedging, regionalization, and onshoring all are occurring increasingly over the next 10 years. We're just now at the beginning of this process, but that will lead endemically to a higher rise in prices as globalization as we know it comes to an end. And then the last point, and this is just typically Democrats pouring gasoline onto a raging fire. 
so terrified by dislocations over COVID, so fearful of the uncertainty that COVID has created, they all said, well, let's be careful. Let's be on the safe side. Let's print money like it's going out of style. And that'll cushion us for the blows that come from COVID. And that was the thinking of many central bankers and many governments of the world these last two years. The problem was they underestimated the resilience of modern capitalist economics. And Larry Summers gets this right over Paul Krugman. Again, Krugman is a great example of someone who ought to be unemployed. This is the Yasser Arafat of macroeconomics. If he told me to go left, I'd go right. If he told me to go up, I'd go down. This is a guy who's been wrong about literally everything that has endless sinecures and no one questions him, even though the call record is abysmal. Compare this to Larry Summers, who early and often got this absolutely right, that if you add 15% in the United States in spending, and Trump was every bit as profligate and fearful as was Biden, if you add 15% increases in spending through Trump's COVID emergency bill, Biden's trillion-dollar COVID emergency bill, the bipartisan bill of infrastructure spending in the United States. If you add 15% to the money supply by just spending money heedlessly, and at the same time, the economy is only one or two percent, one or two clicks below operational capacity pre-COVID, you're going to get inflation. It's inevitable. It's math. There's nothing you can do about it. They got this wrong fundamentally, and now they're all scrambling to catch up. But to do so, they will either have to raise interest rates and will do so too quickly because interest rates are a blunt tool and that will hurt growth, or they will undershoot and inflation will keep shooting up. So they have let the beast out of the cage that Reagan and Volcker tamed. This is the second bit of very bad news out there and our fifth prediction. Our sixth prediction is the death of the grown-ups, that the center-right brand, which has dominated politics in the West, the advanced industrialized countries, for the last 70 years has come to an end. For two-thirds of this time, the center-right dominated things, and they had a brand. The brand was, fiscally, we're more responsible than the left. We are politically moderate, which keeps the far-right and populists at bay, and we are cautiously realist internationalists. Think Eisenhower, think Adenauer, think Thatcher. Um, you're going to get this right. Think Shinzo Abe, the former recent leader of Japan. Uh, think De Gaulle, and you're going to get this right. And that brand is now utterly diluted. And, and every country, with the grand exception of the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, which plows on, everybody else has seen the brand tarnished because it no longer represents these basic core principles. In the United States, since Eisenhower, who balanced the budget four of eight years, a truly incredible record of grown-up behavior economically, you have the Republicans spending just as much money since as the Democrats being just as profligate. The Democrats never met an entitlement they didn't want, but the Republicans never met a tax cut they didn't want, but there are no spending cuts to offset that, so both of them are equally profligate, and we see that. We see with Trump the flirtation with populism, strongman government, doing away with the notion of moderation. And we see under George W. Bush the flirtation with the missionary Robespierreist neoconservative agenda, uh, which is everything other than sober international realism. And we see a swing back to isolationism. And so the brand in the U.S. has been muddied in all three ways. In the U.K., the brand has been muddied primarily over economics, 
where Boris Johnson is now spending money like water and tax rates in the UK under Johnson are now the highest of any government in the UK since the socialist, and at least he admitted what he was, Clement Attlee government of the post-war era. Taxes are back to the highest level since Clement Attlee. Extraordinary uh, dilution of the brand in the UK. In the Gaullist France, we have such a dissolution that until the recent boomlet for Valérie Pécresse, we have the major party contenders for president, and the French Fifth Republic is a presidential monarchist system. When you read the Constitution, I think of de Gaulle's hat. Um, and in that system, although socialists and Gaullists still are dominant in parliament, parliament doesn't matter very much. It's the presidency that matters. And there it's been personality. Macron, Zemmour, Le Pen have no party structure behind them. They're personalities with factions behind them. And you see the diminution of French Gaullism. The same has happened to the CDU, CSU in Germany, where Merkel always strategically incomprehensible, but tactically savvy, has moved economically the CDU to the center, seeing there's no difference at all between the SPD and the CDU, which is why Schultz won. Uh, you see her move away from realism toward a neutralism, a mercantilist neutralism, no longer a pro-American realism. And you see her so dilute her brand that the party without her collapses. Um, fortunately, Friedrich Merz has just been called in the new leader who may reestablish some of the brand. But at the moment, in all these countries in the West, you have the demise of the party, the center-right parties, other than the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party in Japan. And what this means is that the guardrails of politics are off. In the funhouse, that these establishment institutions kept a limit on how far any individual could stray from the brand. With the brand's destruction, now you have a politics of personality. Now you have a politics of the individual. Now you have to worry about the psychological foibles of any one leader. It becomes Freudian. It becomes biographical. You go back to Hans Morgenthau's work on these areas in foreign policy, his pioneering work, and you have an awful lot more political risk because institutions don't matter as much and individuals matter more. So our big six are, in summation, COVID is over. Very good news. Asia is still a huge economic opportunity, particularly India and factory Asia. And the very structure of the world favors a continued pro-Western leaning. The three very bad things are our fourth prediction, as we've outlined here in some detail, the Sino-American Cold War is the fundamental fact of our new era. Inflation is endemic. It's not transitory. It's something we're going to have to deal with well into the middle term because governments took their eye off the ball during their fears over COVID along with central banking. And the death of the grown-ups, that the center-right that has kept the West stable and within an institutional system has fallen apart in favor of the cult of the individual. Our last prediction, which is the upset special, it is the hardest to make, high-risk prediction, but hugely important is look for there to be a war in Ukraine with Russia in the next three months, say into the spring of, the, of 2022. And Putin having probed and seen there's no pushback of any kind, he can eat the sanctions, he can re-invade or, or up the invasion, he's already in eastern Ukraine, but can up the invasion significantly. He won't take over the whole country, he doesn't want to. He wants to link up Crimea, through Ukraine to Russia itself. He'll make that strip of land work. And then he'll offer to put out the fire that he set with the West along terms that favor him. 
and there's nothing to stop him. I can see no reason he doesn't do this. As a realist, weighing it up, if I were Putin, I would do this. So our upset special, our seventh pick, is look for war in Ukraine, which no one is talking about in the next three months. Not a threat of war, but a real Russian invasion of Ukraine, which will put the West under pressure in a way it's not been in the foreseeable future. These seven predictions we stand behind. Please take them to the bank. And please judge us by them. And we'll have a column next year looking at them. Uh, what we got right, what we can learn from that, what we got wrong, and at 83% is our number gone up or down. But I guarantee you, John C. Holzman Enterprises over 20 years has by far the best call record out there. Look it up and you'll see. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this lengthy Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, a very important one on our political risk predictions for 2021. As we move forward, please do subscribe. So many of you have. If I look back on 2021, to me, this is the year of Substack. And when we've done things with Substack, it's been wonderful. And this has been a new venue for us. And it's my favorite because one of the things people are right about with the mainstream media is that it filters, it gets in the way, it censors. And I have no middlemen between me, no editors, no board policies. It's just me talking directly in an unfiltered manner to you. And this is the most important thing there could possibly be. And so I love Substack. Those of you who have subscribed, thank you. Those of you who haven't, please do so now because more and more we're going to move things to our subscription grouping. So please do subscribe now. And those of you who have subscribed, I'm about to have my coffee, as you know, please do give. If you think that this adds value to your life through humor, through cutting edge analysis, through spending this time together, as we so often do through our book serializations, we're starting a new one in the new year. Probably we will do Godfather Doctrine, my best-selling book ever, next. Um, if you like the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, the Patrick Henry podcast, and all the other things we do for literally the price a month of half a Starbucks, half a Starbucks, do give to us because this will allow us to move over more and more time in the firm to spend on Substack, which we love. And we want to keep doing that. And thanks to so many of you who have subscribed and given. Please do give. We're asking $70 a year, that half a Starbucks, or $7 a month. $70 a year or $7 a month. And on that note, off to coffee. Hope you enjoy the predictions of which we will return to much. But take these seven to the bank. <laughs>